Let me, uh, let me pray and then have that passage open in front of you. There's the, an outline of where we're heading as we uh, go through chapter 4 of uh, 1 Peter. Uh, but let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you're a God who speaks. Father, we thank you for your grace towards us. We thank you that you actually have eternity in your hand. And we ask that today as we reflect on the nature of your having authority over all things from the beginning of time to the end of time, that we'll be able to situate ourselves in your hand, your gracious hand, as we reflect on life in this world and how we live and our priorities. Uh, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I came across this article uh, about a a plane that was travelling over the Indian Ocean when all engines on this plane failed and the experience of the passengers as they faced up to the reality that they were all about to die. Let me just read you uh, the introduction to it. It It's a few years ago now. It's on the 24th of June 1982. A British Airways Boeing 747 bound for Australia and New Zealand was cruising above the Indian Ocean when suddenly, inexplicably, all four of its engines failed. In the next 12 minutes, while the aircraft plunged 7,600 metres, the 263 people on board faced the fact that it was going to crash and most were certain they would die. So let me ask you, you're um, on that plane, one of the 263 passengers, uh, all the engines have failed and you're feeling like it's about to crash into the ocean and you'll certainly be killed. What's going through your head at this moment? Uh, what are you thinking about? You know, would you pause and uh, share the gospel with the person next to you because you've got seven minutes? That gives you a shorter period of time to do that. Uh, yeah, well, what would actually be going on for you? It's interesting, the, the article records all sorts of different reactions that people had. Um, Doris Hankinson, uh, she had been on holidays and she said the first thought that came into her head uh, was this. Oh my goodness, all those t-shirts I bought in Bali are about to float away, okay? (laughs) Profound thinking. In fact, they're probably just going to dissolve if they came from Bali. But, you know, the the whole idea of, uh, you know, the the trivia that people go to. The captain was a consummate professional. This is what he said. He came onto the loudspeaker system. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. You know how they do in that voice, captain speaking. We have a small problem. (laughs) <laughs> a small problem. All four engines have stopped, you know. I think that it rank above the small problem sort of category. What would, what would go through your head? It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, it says, The end of all things is near. It's a uh, drumbeat that appears all the way through this letter, uh, that is the end of things, the return of Jesus, the implications of what will happen. But the focus in 1 Peter, as in the whole of the New Testament, is not on the time uh, when the world will end, you know, 1243 on the 1st of March 2023. It's not sort of trying to predict that sort of time because we know anyone who tries to predict it is contradicting Jesus who said you'll never be able to work that out. So not so much the time, but the period or the last phase before Jesus returns to this world. We're talking about that that space in time. 
And this chapter we're looking at, 1 Peter chapter 4, it's trying to pick up on how that knowledge of the end of all things will affect us as Christians, uh, how it will have impact on our lives and our thinking. And we're going to look at three different areas. That is, how it affects our attitude to sin, our priorities as we live in this, these last days, and then also the way we think about suffering. Okay, So attitude to sin, our priorities in these last days, and the way we think about suffering. So firstly, attitude to sin. Pick up on verses uh, 1 to 6. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself with the same attitude. Whoever suffers in his body is done with sin. Uh, it links our attitude with sin to the previous verses that talk about Jesus' death. So back in chapter 3, verse 18, we're told, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous, for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. See, here is God's grace explicitly outlined for us. Uh, Christ died for our sins. He freed us from the consequences of sin and judgment. And therefore, uh, the command is not to return to sin, what you've been rescued from. I remember talking to a cardiac surgeon one time, and he was saying that... Uh, uh, Often he'd operate on patients who their cardiac condition, you know, blocked arteries and things like that, was due to the fact that they'd been smokers uh, throughout their life. And so he'd, he'd do the operation, but he'd also counsel their patient on the importance of giving up smoking so that they wouldn't have a recurrence of the same sort of problem. He said it drove him nuts when he'd do this operation to uh, clear out the arteries and put in stents and things like that. If the person then just returned to the old habit of smoking and just ignored his advice. It's the same sort of point. Christ has rescued us from sin, therefore don't go back to it. Uh, chapter 4, verse 2. They do not live the rest of their earthly lives uh, for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. That's the point. But as we've seen throughout this letter, that's not completely straightforward because we're, we're aliens and strangers in this world. Our, our home is heaven, that's where we're heading, and we're surrounded in a world uh, by people with different attitudes, different approaches, uh, where uh, the love of things or immorality or whatever it is uh, is just common. And it's hard to stand apart from that also hard to stand apart from it if it's been your pattern prior to becoming a Christian. And the people around you who are your non-Christian friends, they don't get it necessarily why this change will have occurred. Verse 4, they think it's strange that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of dissip dissipation and they heap abuse on you. So I remember when uh, I became a Christian, so I had a pattern throughout university days of going out with mates, getting drunk on a regular basis. And uh, I remember when I be became a Christian, my parents, after a, a few weeks, sitting me down and saying they were deeply disturbed about the fact that I'd become a Christian. And they said one of the things that really worried them uh, was the fact that uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't going out drinking with my friends anymore. Isn't that interesting? Because I thought me not getting drunk was probably a good thing, you know, but they were worried 
about the fact that I'd had this change of pattern uh, in my life. Uh, people around you won't necessarily get why it is uh, that you operate to the beat of a different drum. Unbelievers, they might heap abuse upon you because you don't keep joining in with them because you have convictions. But the end is near, says Peter, verse 5. They that is speaking about those who don't follow Jesus, they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The message is really clear. Don't deny Christ's death for your sin by continuing in sin. So it's just a contradiction of terms. It also affects our priorities. You move on to verses 7 to 11. Uh, verse 7, we're told the end of all things is near. Be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. It, it's interesting, when people are under pressure, uh, their minds can just go to jelly. Uh, it's really quite interesting. So the interview on this flight that was going down over the Indian Ocean, uh, stewardess Wright, uh, who was on, on board the plane, this is what she was thinking about as the plane was crashing into the ocean. Right? She was worried about whether her parents would be able to find her car at the car park at Heathrow Airport. Well, that's important, isn't it? Isn't it interesting? Or Bronwyn Williams. Bronwyn, spelled B-R-O-N-W-E-N, was worried that the newspapers uh, wouldn't be able to spell her name correctly in the account that they gave. Isn't that interesting? The sort of things that people think about. We all... We all re react quite differently when we're under pressure. So Peter the Apostle, who wrote this, this letter, in uh, Mark chapter 14, uh, Jesus was facing death and his disciples were under the pump by association. They were quite, quite worried. And Jesus says to Peter in Mark chapter 14, verse 38, Watch and pray that you don't fall into temptation. Watch and pray that you don't fall into temptation. And what does Peter do? He sleeps. And then he denies Jesus in due course. Peter now writes this letter to Christians who are under pressure. And in chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray so that you can pray. It's interesting, isn't it? The echo from his own background and experience. Pray. What do you pray? Well, I take it given this chapter and even back in Mark chapter 14, you pray that you won't be tempted to deny Jesus as you live in this world. You pray that you won't disassociate from him. You pray that you won't just be caught up in the sin of the people around you. You pray that you'll keep acknowledging the rule of God in this world over your life and over eternity. You pray about living faithfully until the return of the Lord Jesus. That's what you pray for. And that's the way you live. Peter goes on. Uh, verse 8, he talks about loving one another. So the end of all things is near, verse 7. Then, therefore, verse 8, above all, love each other deeply because love 
covers a multitude of sins. So why is this so strong? Above all, love each other deeply. Well, I take it that when you're under pressure, uh, when you're feeling that, uh, you know, that contention around you, you default into patterns of behaviour that destroy relationships. You, if you're like me, if I'm tired and I'm under a lot of pressure, right, I get grumpy. Right? Not that helpful, really, to the people around me, either the people I work alongside or for Sue, who has to live with me, Mr Grumpy, you know, like... There are all sorts of ways in which we react when we're under pressure, short-tempered, impatient, frustrated. You'll know yourself and what it is that happens to you when you're put under pressure like that and the way in which you'll tend to, tend to resort to sinful outcomes. What, what destroys love? Isn't it our sin? And like what, our selfishness, our insensitivity? Isn't it our, when we're hurt by others, our failure to forgive, the way in which we've been called upon to forgive? Look what it says there. Love covers a multitude of sins. Interesting, isn't it? it it's not saying we can do Jesus' job for him. He's the only one who can die for sins so that we can be forgiven and have a right, right relationship with God. But nor is it saying ignore sin. You know, love covers a multitude of sin. Just pretend like it's not there. It's not saying that either. It's, it's not going in either direction. But... But love should dominate when sin threatens to destroy relationships. That's what we're being told here. See, when you're hurt or when people avoid you or when they uh, leave you out or when they're insensitive towards you or when they let you down or they misinterpret your motives for why you've done something, it's easy, isn't it, to be angry or to cut people off or to draw your friends closer into that inner circle, you know, to just push people away, or to gossip, or to stir up trouble, or to force people to take sides, or to... Lots of different things you can do as strategy uh, when sin reigns. But friends, Jesus will return. The end is near. And we're going to spend eternity with him. But here's the other thing. You're going to spend eternity with each other. Right? So you may as well work on that now and make sure that we're operating with grace and love and care for one another. Love one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. This next one's interesting, I reckon. Uh, verse 9, practice hospitality. The end of all things is near, therefore, verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Isn't that interesting? It, like, the end of all things is near, so make sure you have lots of people around for barbecues. Just doesn't seem that significant, really, does it? We need to keep remembering that the early church was, uh, was a place of uh, hospitality and churches met in homes. That was the way in which people did those sort of relationships. Remember that the early church here, it, this letter has been written to people who were under pressure, persecution, opposition for following the Lord Jesus, it'd be easy, wouldn't it, just to pull back in and just be careful and to be a little self-protective at this sort of moment? 
We need to keep remembering uh, to not forsake our relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, I think, for example, coming out of COVID, I was saying to Sue that we're, we're almost learning um, social fitness again. That's what we feel like. Yeah, we used to have stacks of people wandering through the home all the time and over for meals and things like that. Then we had two years of uh, sort of nervous caution about that sort of thing. And now we're trying to sort of build up our hospitality muscles again. Does anyone else feel that way? There's a sense in which that social engagement thing. And when I come to church on Sundays, you know, I talk with you guys for an hour and I think I need to go and have a four-hour nap, you know. And I don't, I don't think it's just age, but it could be, you know, like, but isn't that interesting? We're, we've got to build that sort of fitness, you know, moving forward. Life gets busy. There are pressures. And one of the things that can be forsaken is the relationships we have with one another. He goes on, verse 10, serve one another. Uh, each one should use whatever gift he's received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. So what, what will remain when Jesus returns? Well, his people will be gathered around the throne in heaven. That's, that's what will be then. And because we're gathering around that throne at that stage, what we need to keep doing right now is using our gifts to gather people and strengthen people for when we're meeting around that throne. Keep using your gifts uh, with that sort of purpose in mind. Making it your priority to build up others. Uh, John Piper is uh, uh, an American uh, Bible teacher and written lots of books. Many of you have probably read his books. He gave a... Um, extraordinary sermon uh, on a university campus a few years ago now, preaching to 30,000 tertiary students out in a field on a cold day. And in it he rang a bell that uh, has endured since then. He talked about making your life count. And he pulled out this Reader's Digest article about a couple called Bob and Penny. Uh, Bob was 59 Penny, 51, when they took an early retirement. And they moved down to Florida and then spent their, their days cruising around on their 30-foot yacht, playing softball and going for walks along the beach and collecting shells. And uh, Piper's point was, when you, you know, the end of all things is near, when you front up before the Lord Jesus Christ, how do you reckon it will go if you say, look, Jesus, here's my shell collection? You know? He was just trying to highlight the futility of some activities in this world. The end of all things is near. So how will you spend your life in service of the king? How will you prioritise your life? How will you make sure you don't waste your life? Then the last part of this chapter... What Peter does is he talks about the way in which the end of all things gives you a different perspective when it comes to suffering and thinking about that sort of trial. It's a big theme in this letter. You go back to chapter 1, verse 6. And there it talks about suffering, grief, and all kinds of trials. Uh, or in chapter 2, verse 20, it speaks about suffering for doing good. And then in chapter 4, verse 12, 
Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you. Now, at this point, let me be clear. The suffering that's being spoken about, uh, it, it's not cancer or old age or a broken leg or just the general suffering of life in this world. It's particularly talking about the, the suffering that comes because you're a follower of Jesus, the persecution uh, because you're a Christian. Uh, so verse 14, it talks about being insulted because of the name of Christ. Or in verse 16, uh, suffering as a Christian. And not suffering because you deserve it. You know, like verse 15, not because you're a murderer, a thief, or a meddler, or a criminal. Right? It's not because you actually deserve it. Well, the point Peter's making is don't be surprised that you're suffering for identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. I find uh, that Christians often do get surprised that they're suffering because they're Christians. It's so common, I think. Uh, and I, I get it at one level because, you know, Christians generally are well-intentioned and kind. So why should we suffer for that, right? <laughs> you know, like we're trying to do, the, do good things by people. So why, why do we cop flack? And also, the other side of it is, if we've got a loving Heavenly Father, why would he let us suffer, right? You know, we're his favourite kids. Surely, you know, we wouldn't be suffering. For that. That, those are the sort of things I keep hearing uh, Christians echoing around. Verse 12. Here it is. We're told, don't be surprised when you suffer. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because Jesus and the gospel, they do offend people. See, when you say to people that they have rebelled against God and they deserve the wrath of God because they are sinners and the only way to escape that is by actually putting their trust in the Lord Jesus for forgiveness of sins, nothing they can do, it is deeply offensive to humanist Australians. There's no question about that. So the gospel itself is offensive. But I want you to notice it says, don't be surprised. But even more than that, it says, rejoice when you suffer. Okay, so this is a bit weird, isn't it? Um, verse 13, rejoice. Verse 14, know you're blessed. Verse 16, don't be ashamed, but praise God. Now, how do, you, how do you do that? Sue and I were at a conference just a couple of years ago. There was an African bishop who was talking about the fact that he'd been away on ministry. He lived in a large city that had a combination of Christians and Muslims living in the city, and there was antagonism between those two groups. While he was away, Muslims broke into his house and savagely beat his wife and his children while he was away doing the Lord's work and they were hospitalised as a result. So what does this bishop do? Oh, thank you, God. You uh, let my wife and kids be beat up. Praise your name. Huh? Really? What are we being told here? You know, it's a bishop going around saying, look at the bruises on my family. Oh, isn't that wonderful? You know, what are we being told here? 
Can I say it's not crazy double thinking Christian logic that uh, we're being told about, but I do want you to pick up the logical force of the argument. So it's not saying suffering isn't painful. It's not saying suffering is not heart-wrenching. It's not saying suffering is not difficult. But what we're being told to do is see suffering from the perspective of heaven, the end. The end of all things is near. Therefore, how should we view this suffering in this present age? When you suffer for Christ, here's what we're told. God actually identifies you with Jesus. Verse 13. You participate in the sufferings of Christ. Verse 14. You're insulted because of the name of Christ. Or verse 16. When you suffer as a Christian, praise God because you bear his name. That's the reason why we celebrate. It's interesting, isn't it? There are people that I'm just proud to be associated with because of their character and how extraordinary they are. So Sue's one of those people, you know, just extraordinary character. But I'm surrounded by leaders around the network, people in this church uh, that I just give thanks for because they're such, they have such integrity and they love the Lord. I, wanna, I want to be associated with them. It's the same sort of idea here. It's an honour to be counted in the company of Jesus. Uh, to actually share, it's a privilege, it's all grace. But when you suffer, uh, here's the thing we're being told you are on team Jesus. So never be ashamed of that. Uh, give thanks to God that he's counted you one of, his, one of his. Second thing is, when you suffer, uh, it's a sign that God's actually present with you. It's interesting, when, often when people suffer, they can talk about the fact that God is a long way off. That, that's the way they feel. You know, the distance that happens because of that. Verse 14 says, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. It's an Old Testament Im- image taken from the book of Exodus uh, when the people of God are in the desert and God's glory uh, was present in very visible ways among his people. Same sort of idea. Us, when we suffer because we're followers of Jesus, it's actually a confirmation that God is with us, not that God's a long way away from us. And we've been told that by God. Third thing is, suffering is actually a sign guaranteeing our future glory. Verse 17. Now this is an unusual statement, verse 17. It's time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And at that point you might go, hey, I thought back in chapter 3 all the judgment fell fell on Jesus. We don't have to be judged now because he got judged. So where's this coming from? Uh, This judgment uh, because of uh, the fact that we're, we're followers of Jesus. The idea here is um, the same sort of idea that comes up in verse 12, which talks about testing. So the idea of judgment here is that God is refining us or shaping us for heaven. 
Now, isn't that a wonderful uh, The fact that God, in his kindness, is preparing us for eternity with himself, which is more valuable by far. That's the sort of idea that's coming here. There will be a day of judgment uh, when Jesus returns. Uh, unbelievers uh, will face that. They're not being prepared or refined by God now, but they will face judgment then. But we're being refined by God now to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that's a gift from God to us right now. The end of all things is near. Uh, can I say that means different amount of time for, for different ones of us? Some of us have got uh, days to live. Uh, statistically, David might be slightly closer uh, to the end of all things than some of us who are six, you know. But we don't know. Jesus might return as well. Uh, the end of all things is near. Can I just stress again, the idea here is not that we guess the date, but we have impressed upon us the urgency of the way in which we use our time right now, making it count. You know, what is important when the end of all things is near? It's interesting, they interviewed uh, the people who survived. Obviously, that plane didn't crash into the ocean. And they interviewed all the different people uh, who survived and their reflections on that time and what impact it had had upon them. Uh, there was a lady called Berry, Be Betty Tootle. Right? She said she's never lost that feeling of living on borrowed time. Uh, she continued to live with her mother and she said, to this day, uh, we still wish, wish each other happy bonus day in the morning and happy bonus day each night. That sense of living on extended time. Friends, every day you are a believer is a bonus day. Huh? Bonus day. Every day you're a follower of Jesus is a day for living in the light of the knowledge that the end of all things is near and that that reality, that truth, that benchmark is the point from which you measure your life and think about what is important and how you'll make that count. And can I say that unless you actually think about that, right, you'll just reflect on the T-shirts that are floating away or you'll think about the car and the car park or you'll think about wonder if anyone will find the keys to the house or you'll, you'll think about all sorts of stuff that won't last. But that reality of the end of all things being near is meant to shape you. Uh, your thinking, your activities, your priorities, your relationships, uh, so that you live with pr profound focus and purpose as we await the Lord Jesus' return. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do. Um, we thank you. We don't get this perspective in our world. No one talks about the end. Uh, uh, no one thinks about eternity. No one thinks about the promises that you make. But Father, your word makes it so clear. The Lord Jesus has died and risen from the dead and guaranteed uh, the future for those who put their trust in him. And Father, we pray we'll be those sort of people, uh, people who live with that reality impressed upon us, 
uh, the reality of knowing your kindness towards us, but a kindness that leads to purposefulness, uh, a kindness that leads us to reflect on what's important. So, Father, help us to do that. Help us to do it as a church. Uh, help us to love and serve and honour you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.